Welcome to Value Investing, the Starvine Way, where my goal is to help you learn more about value investing and compounding wealth with a long-term focus. We will accomplish this by sharing a mix of monologues and conversations. I'm your host, Stephen Coe, founder of Starvine Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as investment advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek advice that reflects their personal financial situation. In episode three, we started covering Warren Buffett's favorite investment book of all time, The Intelligent Investor, written by Benjamin Graham. Buffett has always said that chapter eight and chapter 20 were the two most important chapters of the book. Chapter 20 discusses the importance of investing with a margin of safety, and that was our focus for Episode 3, whereas this episode is focused on Chapter 8, titled The Investor and Market Fluctuations. We'll again be referring to the revised edition, which is based on Graham's final 1973 version, but republished with commentary from Jason Swig in 2006. As you can probably guess from the title, this chapter is about being able to deal psychologically with fluctuations in the stock market, and moreover thinking correctly about them. I think anyone who ever buys a share on an exchange should at a minimum read chapter 8. Why? We have a choice in how to handle wild market and stock price gyrations. We can use them to our advantage if we know how, or we can let them control us. And here's yet another disclaimer. We may be trying to summarize this seminal investment writing, but this episode is not a substitute for reading Graham's work. If you really want to learn about value investing, get the book yourself and read it. The timing for us to be reviewing this subject couldn't be better. Given we experienced earlier this year the quickest 30% drop in the S&P 500 in recorded history, just 22 trading days from the February 19 high, and then one of the fastest recoveries in recorded history, although tech stocks have had a disproportionate influence on the bounce back up. First, Graham states that it is valid for investors to want to profit from trading, that is, buying and selling well, but that such behavior could lead to speculation. He stated that if you choose to speculate, do so knowing that a loss will be the likely result and keep it separate from your investing program. The swings in the market resemble a pendulum and profiting from them can be done in two ways. One, by timing, and by this we mean directing our trading according to how we predict future market movements. An example would be today. We sit here in October 2020, just weeks away from the US presidential election and with the world still in the grip of a pandemic. Selling your holdings now in anticipation of heightened volatility in November or holding a lot of cash to buy back in after your predicted crash in November would be an example of timing. The other method, according to Graham, is by way of pricing. By pricing, he meant buying stocks when they trade below fair value and selling them when they rise above fair value. And to be clear, by fair value, we mean an estimate of what the company is worth based mostly on its earnings power and or asset value. Graham wrote that those who emphasize on timing or market forecasting will end up in the speculator camp and with the speculator's results. He goes on to say that there are plenty of market predictions that appear almost daily, yet they get the attention of investors because people think it is important to have some opinion of the future direction of the market and because brokerage forecasts are deemed dependable. I was just paraphrasing Graham, but I'm going to say it yet another way. If you base your actions off only those who predict where markets go, or worse, allow your emotions, antsiness, or animal spirits to dictate your trading activity, you may be right some of the time, but over the long haul, this behavior is very unlikely to lead to great wealth. He states that a great deal of brain power goes into forecasting, and yet some people will make money by being good stock market analysts. 
but it is absurd to think the general public or retail investors can ever make any money out of these forecasts. Most speculate because they want to make profit in a hurry. The idea of waiting a year for a stock to move up is a turnoff for a speculator. This version of the book was published almost a half century ago, but it could have been released today, and yet nothing has changed with regard to human psychology. If anything, technology has fostered instant gratification and, when it comes to trading, led to more speculation as the tools to day trade can be downloaded in an instant on anyone's smartphone. The investor, on the other hand, is not so concerned with waiting for a period of time before seeing results. Graham poses a question. Can an investor benefit from price movements after they've happened? For example, buy after each major decline and sell out after each major advance. He looked at the period of 1897 to 1949 and observed that of the 10 complete market cycles, bull markets had well-defined characteristics in common, such as 1. High price levels, 2. High price to earnings or what we call P.E. ratios, 3. Low dividend yields as compared to bond yields, 4. A high degree of buying on margin, and 5. Many low-quality IPOs. The student of stock market history at any point could say that one should be able to see the patterns and thereby buy in bear markets and sell during bull markets. So why doesn't this thinking work out in practice? Graham pointed out that there are enough changes from cycle to cycle, specifically the number of years the cycles last, that it is frustrating to try to buy low and sell high based on history. Trying to jump in and out successfully during the great bull market of the 1920s, the bull market beginning 1949, or more recently the one that began after the 2008-9 crash, would not have been profitable for most. Every investor who owns common stocks must expect to see them fluctuate in value over the years. A serious investor is not likely to believe that the day-to-day or even month-to-month fluctuations of the stock market make him richer or poorer, but what about the longer-term and wider changes? I'm going to a passage that starts on page 196. A substantial rise in the market is at once a legitimate reason for satisfaction and a cause for prudent concern, but it may also bring a strong temptation toward imprudent action. Your shares have advanced. Good. You are richer than you were. Good. But has the price risen too high and should you think of selling? Or should you kick yourself for not having bought more shares when the level was lower? Or, worst thought of all, Should you give way to the bull market atmosphere, become infected with the enthusiasm, the overconfidence, and the greed of the great public, of which you are a part, and make larger and dangerous commitments? The answer to the last question is a self-evident no, but even the intelligent investor is likely to need considerable willpower to keep from following the crowd. Graham then suggests we may want to follow some mechanical method of rebalancing between stocks and bonds because that would give us an outlet for pent-up energies, as though we are children who cannot otherwise keep our heads straight on our shoulders. Today, you see many advisors and portfolio managers rebalancing to a 60-40 rule, that is 60% equities and 40% fixed income. But the truth is Graham is right. I have my own portfolio rebalancing rules that force me to sell a portion of any position that grows to the extent that it breaches a certain ceiling, no matter how much I like the position. I'm sure most funds have a similar rule. Having predefined guardrails that force us to self-modulate out of risk management reasons may limit the upside of a diamond in the rough, but it imposes a limit on how much damage any single position can cause. The next section of the chapter is, in my opinion, the crux of the discussion. The owner of a common stock has a double status. One, a minority shareholder or silent partner in a business, and in this aspect results depend on the company's profits or a change in the value of its assets. And two, a piece of paper. Back in Graham's day, there were actual paper stock certificates, so let's say a symbolic trading vehicle that can be bought at one price and sold for another seconds later. 
Graham states that so-called successful enterprises sell far above book value in that in paying these premiums, the investor is untethering from an anchor. He refers often to book value as a gauge of intrinsic value, and this is something I believe the present-day reader must mentally adjust for. His view of book value was that it should be tangible book value that is used. The information can be found on a balance sheet and calculated by subtracting total liabilities from total assets and then further deducting intangibles, or things you can't actually touch like goodwill, value of customer lists, copyright, and trademarks. Now, I'm 100% certain that if Graham were alive today, he would loosen his view on book value, given just how much the composition of companies has shifted in the marketplace from industrials to service companies. Firms like consulting companies, business software, and pharmaceuticals may never trade below tangible book value, even in an extreme market crash, because it is their intangible assets that produce so much cash flow, and so there is a big disconnect between earnings power and the hard assets that these companies possess. But if we look through to the underlying point, it is still completely valid today. Graham said the more successful the company, the more likely there are to be large fluctuations in the price of its shares. And why is this? Because its popularity is likely to lead to more gambling in its shares. Today, when we think of which companies fall into the popular growth camp, the fan group, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, and let's not forget Tesla, these come immediately to mind. In the chapter, Graham pointed to two fang-like stocks of the 1960s, IBM and Xerox. IBM crashed from 607 to 307 months in 1962-63 and from 387 to 219 in 1970. Xerox fell from its 171 high to 87 in 1962-1963 and from 116 to 65 in 1970. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Never was there a doubt in those years that the long-term growth outlook for IBM or Xerox looked great. It was the lack of confidence in the premium valuations the market had previously given those excellent companies. Again, Graham refers to tangible book value, saying a conservative investor constructing a portfolio of stocks should limit how much is paid in relation to tangible book value, maybe no more than one-third or 33% above that level. I again would say that that would be far too limiting in today's world. I believe free cash flow would be a more relevant measure. But in essence, he is saying that an investor should always be mindful of how much is being paid relative to a marker of value. Graham then makes an all-important point, saying a stock does not become a sound investment merely because it can be bought at close to its asset value. The investor should also demand a satisfactory earnings yield, a sufficiently strong financial position, and reasonable prospects that earnings can at least remain level into the future. He states that those requirements aren't hard to fill under all but dangerously high market conditions, and that once an investor can stop considering only companies with brilliant growth prospects, there should be no problem finding ideas that meet the above criteria. I would say the exact same thing is true today in 2020. If you can remain impartial to growth, but rather look for a balance of valuation, strong modes, above average capital allocation, and at least moderate growth prospects, there are many companies out there trading at a compelling range. Now, it seems many opportunities are in the sub-20 billion market cap range, which isn't small in an absolute sense, but definitely small relative to the popular tech names of today. As long as the earnings power of a company remains steady, an investor who did not pay too high a multiple on those earnings can take a much more detached view of price fluctuations versus those who have paid nosebleed multipliers on earnings. And that's because every price sets a bar of expectations. Those that knowingly pay a high price are not thinking about the downside that comes with expected growth not becoming reality. And vice versa, paying a low price 
relative to earnings sets a low bar of expectations to beat. In practice, I wouldn't say it is that easy though because it is a competitive market and there are many potential pitfalls, but that's the general idea. ANP traded as high as 494 in 1929 before the great crash and came out after the great depression and bear market of 1938 at a low of 36. At that price, ANP traded for less than its current assets, meaning it was technically worth more dead than alive given the company was trading less than liquidation value. And why would the market torpedo this outstanding business to such a degree? At the time, there were three distinct factors. One, there were threats special taxes would be levied against chain stores. Two, the company had a bad earnings year. And three, markets were depressed at the time. The first of the reasons turned out to be a groundless fear, while the other two turned out to be temporary. The next year in 1939, the stock advanced to $117.50 or triple the low the year before. By 1961, the price had reached $70.50, the equivalent of $705 pre-split at a P.E. ratio of 30 times. Now that is significant because it shows the extreme change in sentiment over time. The price was pricing in a lot of optimism, which ended up having no justification in hindsight. In fact, earnings went downward the next year and the price more than halved to 34. The price then fell to 18 in 1972 before reporting the first quarterly loss in its history. The morals of this story are first that the market can get it wrong and very wrong, an astute investor with a strong stomach can take advantage of the market's errors. The other is that most businesses are not static. They change in character and quality over the years. Going back to a comparison between the owner of shares in a public company versus the one who has an interest in a private business, the owner of stocks has two ways to think. A part owner of various businesses or simply as a holder of shares that can be sold at any time at their quoted market price. But here is an important fact. The investor is free to disregard the price fluctuations and pay attention to it only to the extent that it serves a purpose. The irony is those who let themselves become too worried about market declines are transforming the basic advantage of price volatility into a basic disadvantage. Those individuals would be better off if stocks had no market quotation at all. And here Graham introduces the Mr. Market parable. Imagine you own a small share of a business that costs $1,000. Your partner named Mr. Market tells you every day what he thinks your interest is worth. Every day, he offers to buy you out or to sell you more interest. But if you are an astute investor, will you let Mr. Market's daily messages determine your value of a $1,000 interest in the company? It would make sense to buy from him when he offers you a low price and to sell to him when he offers a high price. All the same, what Mr. Market thinks may bear no resemblance to your assessment based on studying a company and going through its operating and financial results. Graham finishes off by saying the investor and the speculator can be distinguished by their attitude toward price movements. The speculator's interest lies in anticipating and profiting from market fluctuations, while the investor's interest lies in buying and holding what he refers to as suitable securities at suitable prices. Market swings are still important to an investor because they create low prices at which buying is compelling and vice versa, high prices at which it may be wise to sell. Graham discourages investors from waiting until the market gets cheap because the wait time could be long and you may miss income and also miss investment opportunities. The one exception is when the market is much higher than can be justified, but even then one may find bargain opportunities in individual names. Much effort and resources on Wall Street are directed toward picking stocks or industries that will outperform in a short period of time. Graham discourages the DIY investor from following this route because one would be competing against the pros who are trying to do the same thing. 
Graham's last major point in this chapter is that an investor with a portfolio of sound companies should expect their prices to fluctuate but shouldn't be concerned by big declines nor become excited by big advances. An investor must remember that daily stock prices are there for convenience, either to be taken advantage of or ignored. An owner of a stock should never buy just because it has gone up or sell just because it has gone down. All right, we're back again. So why do you think Warren Buffett likes these two chapters so much in particular? To recap, chapter 20 is about investing with a margin of safety and chapter 8 instructed on how to think about price fluctuations. From a practical perspective, these two chapters lay out a lot of important philosophical groundwork. They may not give you everything you need to know to invest, but they alone provide tools for common sense or decision-making. And since the concepts are based on logic, it is hard to refute them, and over time, the concepts don't go stale. Can you expand on this a bit? For example, margin of safety. Why should that resonate with people as much today as back then? Well, one of the important things about margin of safety is that you can think of it instead as always requiring a margin for error. Going back to the example in episode 3 about keying in a destination in Google Maps and seeing the ETA or estimated time of arrival is, let's say, 45 minutes, and you decide to leave 60 minutes to build in a margin of error, then you get the gist of what margin of safety is. An accident might happen on the 401, and that 15-minute margin might get used up, and so you actually achieved your goal of arriving on time for an important meeting by building in just the right amount of margin. So there were two key points in getting that right. Someone or something had to figure out the estimated time of arrival, and secondly, you had to pick how much extra time to build in on top of that. Well, in value investing, it is somewhat similar. Instead of the ETA, we have to estimate the value of the company and then divide by a number of shares to arrive at a value per share. And then instead of building in extra time in case traffic doesn't go as you expect, here we have to decide what price you'd pay below the value estimated. And you'd want to do that to build in a buffer for things to go wrong. For example, it could be that you calculated too high value or something unexpected like COVID hurts the company's fortunes. In doing so, the thinking is that the investment is better protected. Or in an upside scenario, you consciously bought for a low price and the company's future earnings end up being much better than what's reflected in the low price you paid. The key difference here would be that unlike us going on a road trip and having more control over what time we leave the house, we can't pick or control stock prices, but we can do the homework and arrive at a price we're willing to pay and be disciplined at buying only at a compelling price. So in other words, if the price never gets to what we require, we never buy. One thing to remember is that companies aren't static. And that means that their value also isn't static. It could be that today's price isn't low enough, but if the company's profits, say, double in five years and the price is still the same, then we may have a good value opportunity depending on what that price is. Okay, you've reviewed the whole margin of safety concept. So how does that relate to Chapter 8 and fluctuations? They seem like two different things. They are different, but they kind of go hand in hand. When thinking about margin of safety... We have to estimate how much a company is worth, which most of the time should be connected to its earnings and how you see those earnings growing over years. 
Now that exercise is completely separate from the price offered on any particular day or minute on, say, the NYSE. Ben Graham came up with the Mr. Market analogy to help people understand. Think of Mr. Market as representing the whole market, which by its very nature can turn on a dime and become very moody. Take last February. The markets were reaching all-time highs, and then when the COVID lockdown happened, the mood suddenly soured. The reaction might be understandable, but you may disagree with it and take advantage of the beaten-up price if you've done your homework. For example, when Disney lost more than a third of its value from the start of 2020, as the parks they had to close and its ESPN business suffered as live sports halted, but If say this was a company you had a good understanding of financially and could see that it had a strong enough balance sheet to withstand a prolonged downturn, and your estimate of the company's value going out a few years after things returned to normal was say $150 per share, so the $93 or $94 offered in March, if you bought on the exchange, would have represented a pretty significant discount to your estimate of value. In this hypothetical example, fluctuations in the market offered a low price, and you decided to take advantage of it after having an informed view of what you thought the company was truly worth, and seeing the ninety-four dollar price provided enough margin of safety against your one hundred fifty dollar value. Can you give an example of a company you'd buy if Mr. Market gave you the opportunity, or the market corrected itself? I always keep a watch list of things I don't own that I'd like to own if the price was right, but that question is hard to answer because there is always a relative aspect to it. I mean, if there was a serious market correction and a bunch of ideas entered the buy range, it could very well be that holdings I already own are down the same percentage, and the value proposition at the time is good. I might just buy more of what I own, but maybe we can reword that to say. What do I think would be a good risk return in a market downturn type situation? One company I have seen that actually benefits from recessions and downturns is Brookfield Asset Management. Brookfield is an investor diversified in all sorts of hard assets like renewable power, real estate property, infrastructure, and also they are an asset manager. So it earns fees for managing money for institutions like pension funds and sovereign funds and. Altogether, it manages about five hundred fifty billion dollars of assets. Now there are various publicly traded Brookfield subsidiaries. I like all of them and see them all as compounding vehicles. But maybe we'll just stick with Brookfield Asset Management, which is the parent company and probably the one that most are familiar with. This is a pretty big company as far as Canadian companies go. Its market cap is over fifty billion U.S. dollars, but it's not. Top of mind for everyday investors, in the same way Apple, Disney, Google, or any consumer products company that everyone is familiar with. And as an investor, I see that as a good thing. Without getting too technical, Brookfield trades at a discount to what I see as its value. And on top of that, the value should grow double digits on a compound annual basis. So just as a snowball, when you roll it down the hill, its growth compounds every time you keep rolling it. I think this company has one of the best management teams in Canada, and they're aligned. They own more than 17% of the company. I've been following this name and investing in its subsidiary since 2009, and it's amazing just how focused the management is on compounding per share value. But what I've always found fascinating 
is just how far ahead this company thinks. It actually prepares for recessions. There's that term anti-fragile that I think really applies to Brookfield. It describes things that benefit from chaos. If you look at what Brookfield did in past recessions, they had an incredible track record taking advantage of downturns to buy assets and companies on the cheap. The 2008 housing crisis, for example, they made a killing from it by buying housing lots for pennies on the dollar in California. And also they acquired some great infrastructure assets for their infrastructure subsidiary from an owner that had too much debt. Now, going back to the Mr. Market analogy, in the credit crisis in 2008, Brookfield stock tanked by two-thirds despite by then already having established a good track record. I remember at the time, everyone seemed to be worried about the absolute amount of debt on its balance sheet. The company made it pretty clear that the debt was very manageable and that most of it was non-recourse, which means it was mostly tied directly to the company's assets. So in other words, a lot of the debt was mortgages held against hard assets like office and retail buildings and infrastructure. So they structured their debt in such a way that if the individual assets couldn't service the debt in the downturn, there was little chance the parent company would go bust. But because they were able to make great undervalued investments during that last recession, they actually came out significantly more valuable. And in this recession, I think they will make some highly profitable investments as well. In fact, they already have. On top of benefiting from recessions, near zero interest rates are actually its friend. And that's because they are a reputable alternative money manager. They manage a booming private equity business that already has a great track record. And the number of clients has gone up 20 times over the past decade. This is because institutions, pension funds, they need to generate a return greater than what the current interest rates can provide. And this tailwind is consistent with what other private equity managers like Blackstone, KKR, and Apollo are benefiting from. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us and let us know if you end up reading the entire book, you can reach us with your questions or comments at podcast at starvinecapital.com. And as always, thank you for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Please share this podcast with someone who might find it interesting. Thank you. Thank you.